Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough nag. Free the black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles. But we still here, in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. Show. They got me started, lying hearted. I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. That 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, kid, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up, up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police departments to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. Okay, um, why, don't we, uh, why don't we get started? Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. 
All right, good. I want to check everybody's still there. Uh, my name is Vincent Sutherland. I am the Executive Director of the Center on Race and Equality in the Law here at NYU School of Law. Um, and I, first of all, want to um, welcome all of you uh, for our third uh, panel of this colloquium on reparations, uh, focused on future possibilities, paving the path forward. Um, we have a phenomenal uh, group of panelists with us uh, here this evening. Um, and one of the things I want to do, though, is make this a very much a conversational piece of, of, of this colloquium, and, and so I'm hoping to open it up to the audience for questions about half or two-thirds of the way through. Um, and questions means questions, okay? You all, <laughs> you all know what I'm talking about. Questions, okay? Um, um, but let me first introduce our panelists. Um, sitting uh, right to my, uh, immediately to my left is Jennifer Bellamy, um, who serves as Senior Legislative Counsel in the, in the ACLU's National Political Advocacy Department, uh, where she advocates on a range of racial justice issues. Um, uh, Jennifer played a leadership role in the passage of the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010, which reduced discriminatory uh, sentencing and addressed some of the racial disparities uh, plaguing the criminal justice system at the federal level. Um, seated, to, seated next to her is Professor Jessica Gordon-Nembhardt, um, who is a professor of community justice and social economic development and chair of the Department of Africana Studies at John Jay College. Um, she's a political economist specializing in solidarity economics, cooperative economics, worker ownership, and black, black political economy. And seated next to her is Casey Foster, who is the co-director of the Youth Power Project at Make the Road New York. Um, the Youth Power Project brings together young people across New York City and Long Island to organize and build power to confront, challenge, and dismantle systems of oppression and build thriving communities. Casey was also um, uh, instrumental in the Movement for Black Lives um, reparations platform. Um, and so uh, please welcome all our panelists. Um, so we, we've heard a great deal tonight um, and this afternoon, first about to whom reparations are owed, um, and why, um, uh, what uh, current forms of reparations look like both um, here on the ground in communities in the United States and internationally, and where those efforts are underway. Um, and of course, our panel is really focused on the future of reparations and what that looks like. Um, and given that this is a kind of forward and future looking, future and forward looking panel on reparations, I'm wondering if each of you can take a few moments to just tell us first, um, how do you define reparations? I think that's an important uh, thing for us to start with. Um, and to whom they're owed, um, and, and what kind of innovative approaches, reparations, policies, or practices are you currently thinking about or working on in your own, in your own work? Um, and, and Jennifer, why don't, we, why don't we start with you? Thanks so much uh, for inviting me and uh, the ACLU and uh, for convening this illustrious group. It's always exciting uh, to see law students um, who are looking to make an impact um, in the world, and that's one of the things that we uh, try to do at the ACLU. Um, we support H.R. 40 and S. 1083. Those are two pieces of federal legislation that would establish a commission that would examine the institution of enslavement and its lasting impact. And in addition to examining that institution, it would make recommendations to Congress for remedies to address the institution as well as its impact. We think that both of those pieces are important. 
Um, so it's, uh, in, in, in our view, uh, for a commission of experts to take a look at the, at the institution of slavery in a way that has not been holistically examined before um, so that we can then make a determination of what should reparations be. I think it requires a thorough study and examination in order to answer that holistically and also in determining where is it appropriate um, for that redress to go. Um, that is another place that the commission could be very much invaluable. So that's why we support those uh, two federal vehicles. Great, cool. Great, thank you. And uh, Professor Gordon Nemhart, what about you? Good evening, everybody. Um, thanks also, I agree, thanks to the organizers. Thanks to all of you for staying. I know it's been a long day already. Um, I also, like some of uh, the other panelists from previous panels, want to um, acknowledge our ancestors and also the original stewards of the land um, and talk about how important it is the right to control land, labor, livelihood. Um, I think that's the basis for when I think about reparations, right, the fact that um, we, people of African descent, have been denied the ability to control life, land, la livelihood, labor. Um, and so for me, reparations are that restitution, um, both financial and spiritual restitution. I really agreed with everything I heard already. I didn't hear the very first panel, but everything in the second panel, so I, I don't want to go over all that, but I do want to add something. I think we don't talk enough about um, the, lack, the, the asset stripping and the lack of control, not just of our bodies, having been property, but also our labor, right? Enslavement was all about work, right? Men's work, women's work, and children's work, right? And about the fact that people of African descent were just considered for their work without them having any control over that work. And so for me, also reparations is about the restitution to control over work, right? To give us back, democratize, work, control over work, control over labor, democratizing capital, that kind of thing. So I think um, I'm going to get another time to talk about more concrete things, right? Or oh, is now the time? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to figure out when I should say which things. But anyway, so um, I'm very much concerned that we make sure to recognize how important control over um, all means of production as much as I'm interested in the spiritual reparations, I really want us to focus on economic and financial reparations to create economic democracy and economic justice. And so a lot of the focus I have is to look at how can we create systems now, right? Recreate, um, what's his name last time talked about, how we not, not repeat is to change the systems, right? And not be complicit in the systems. I'm worried that if we just ask for our check, right, we live in a racialized capitalist society, so our check just lets us put money right back into that racialized capitalist society, and we haven't really changed anything, and yet we might feel restored a little bit or feel a little bit better because the society has so made us so you know, worried just about getting that money. I want us to think about ways that we can actually change the system, stop racialized capitalism, because one of the effects of slave, this, sorry, enslavement 
colonialism, et cetera, was that it created racialized capitalism and allowed it to flourish. And so we have to dismantle that. And so some of the easy ways to dismantle that are to look at um, solidarity economy and cooperative economics movements. And so I've written about this before, but my argument is that we should actually take a lot of that money, not all of it because we owed money for a bunch of things, but some of the money should go into pots of money for communities to restore ourselves by creating worker cooperatives. And we need to do education, so we need money to do co-op business education. We need money for startups. We need money to help young people start their own co-ops so that they can start in a system that doesn't swallow them up and take control over them. Um, I can talk about all the different benefits of cooperatives um, in terms of, again, giving people control over their work and their labor, their uh, wealth, right? Um, they give back to community. They solve community problems. They give community control over solving community problems through an economic means. And I can go on and on about that. If we have time, you can ask me more about that. But I wanted to make sure we put on the table um, those concrete options for how we actually change the system and to use the reparations money for that. Thank you. And Casey. Thank you. I also want to thank the organizers and everyone for coming out tonight um, and not rushing home to see this debate tonight, staying with us. Um, so I also want to just appreciate um, those that came before us in the struggle, especially in the conversation about reparations, Queen Mother Moore, and the other elders that have been really you know, leading um, the struggle for generations um, before us. I also heard the earlier panel, and I think for me, an understanding of reparations isn't a similar framework that has been laid out by other panelists tonight, right? Like there has to be, we have to stop the ongoing harms, and there has to be some guarantee that those harms will not continue. There has to be some sort of restitution, repair, acknowledgement, and compensation. Um, I think uh, in terms of the, the organizing work, um, Movement for Black Lives, um, I would say in terms of thinking about uh, reparations uh, for the systemic denial of, public, of access to public education for black people, that it's still very much in an exploration stage. Um, a lot of our organizing now around education uh, is harm reduction. Uh, a lot of the organizing now around education uh, is to take back some community control um, for our communities of one of the last public goods that we actually have. Um, and so I think what's important around any efforts for reparations around educational reparations is that that effort has to um, be grounded in some sovereignty and community control for black communities um, leading the effort um, in terms of whatever solutions that folks are trying to develop um, long term for reparations. I think, uh, you know, in terms of the organizing, you know, I mentioned harm reduction. Um, I think just in a historical context, right, like from the beginning of a colonial settler land, right, like enslaved Africans that were brought here were denied access to, to education through both state and state-backed violence and terror, right? Um, move, moving forward, we look at, you know, reconstruction, um, any sort of effort for black people to set up educational spaces in their communities were often targeted by white violence and white terror, um, leading all the way up into the fights to integrate schools in the North and Midwest and California, 
um, and then the systemic underinvestment in black educational spaces throughout this country. There's been a destabilizing of access to education for black people in this country, not just those that are seeking education, um, also those that are providing education, right? And so, for example, in New Orleans, post-Katrina, right, they passed an ordinance, they fired everyone who was an educator or anyone else who was employed by the New Orleans education system, which was a system that was almost 70, 80% black staff, and educators and bus drivers and cafeteria workers. When they privatized New Orleans, one of the first things they did was break the union and fired all the teachers who had been scattered surviving for their life. And so I think when we think about educational reparations, it's both thinking about how we are setting up reparations um, on a communal level for those that have been denied access to education, but it's also repairing the harm for the educators and the other folks in the community that have created and set up educational spaces in our community that have either been destabilized through disinvestments or they've actually had their livelihoods taken from them from the privatization um, and other kind of neoliberal uh, policies that have been set forth by pretty much every administration uh, we've had um, going back from the 80s to now. And so really I think for educational reparations, we are at a point still where we need to do a full accounting of the damage that's been done um, and we need to document that um, throughout history up until now, um, and I can get into some of the ways in which black people are still systematically being denied access to public education. Thank you. Um, so I guess I'm curious kind of hearing each of you talk about kind of different ways in which this, this worldview around reparations manifests itself in your own work and what you're looking to kind of going forward. What do you see as kind of the most significant challenge um, to the efforts that you are trying to advance? Um, you know, I think there is, you know, in reading kind of the 1619 project, I think there is, um, uh, you know, part of that uh, project talks about out of slavery and the anti-black racism that it required grew nearly everything that's truly made America exceptional. Its economic might, its industrial power, its electoral system, its diet and popular music, the inequities in the public health and education system, its astonishing penchant for violence, income inequality, um, its slang, legal system, racial fears and hatreds that continue to drive policy today. That's kind of a ground truth, I think, for a lot of folks in this room. Um, but I'm wondering kind of, in the this, in this space in terms of trying to advance the ball, um, how do you move people who don't see that as a ground truth, who don't even acknowledge that as a truth? And then I guess comp, you know, on top of that, what do you see as other challenges in terms of your own work? In case you're not, not in your head, so I'll go with you. Uh, a great question. Um, <laughs> I, I think in terms of education, our public education system, one of the greatest challenges is that there are so many other um, systems embedded and integrated into our public education system now that the ways that which black children are disappeared into these other systems um, is it, it, it's hard to challenge because you're not just challenging the public education system. So example, I don't know if people saw, but there was a video about a young black girl in Florida about six years old that's kind of circulating on the internet now the social worker or guidance counselor or someone else in her school called the police um, 
because she was being a six-year-old um, and she's black. So they called the police on her. The police showed up, um, took her in a police car to a mental health hospital and basically disappeared her there for two days in objection of her mother, right? Um, and so you have the kind of um, social services embedded in schools that are not there to protect and support black children. They're really there to look for ways to disappear them and dispossess them of their education. And then I think most prominently in most of our schools, which you have the criminal legal system embedded and integrated into our schools, right? And so when you look at New York City, New York City has only 2,800 guidance counselors for a million students, and it has 5,500 school police officers in schools, right? And so the education system has really become a place where other systems have kind of integrated their way in there in a way to dispossess black children from access to education. Um, and so, you know, within schools, you're looking at students being suspended, you're looking at students being arrested, you're looking at the getting criminal summons. In some school districts around the country, students get monetary fines for being late to school and truant. And so the public education system has been, other harmful systems have been so wrapped into the public education system, you're not just fighting the public education system when you're organizing, you're fighting all these other systems um, that have been brought in in really perverse ways. And so for folks that are doing education organizing, um, a lot of what it feels like we're doing is harm reduction. Um, and the other, I think, challenge is, you know, you look at New York City, um, there's no public control over New York City's education system because it's mayoral control, right, which is like a false version of uh, any code of community control. The mayor will say, you elect me, and like by you electing me, that is the city saying that like, you know, I am the sole person to be responsible for schools. Well, in the places where they have mayoral control or emergency managers over schools are also the cities in which the majority of students going to school are black and brown, right? And so the same way that you have an emergency manager over the Detroit schools, that was the same emergency manager in Flint that poisoned children, right? The same way in Philadelphia that you have emergency managers. It's only in public school districts where our children are the majority that the right for parents and community members to have some control over those schools is systematically stripped away. And so that, I think, is a big challenge in the organizing that we're doing is that we don't have much say or public control over our schools and there are so many other systems that are already integrated that are dispossessing children of access to an education that you're fighting on a lot of um, different multiple fronts. I would say some of the ad advantages, opportunities we have are um, black people for a long time have seen the fight for public education as one of the like forefronts right, of, our, of our fight for civil rights and human rights in this country. And so there's a long history of different tactics um, that have been used um, all over the country. Um, in New York City, uh, we had the largest walkout ever, um, right, the largest public walkout for public education, um, which was organized a lot by black mothers and folks from clergy. Um, and in other places around the country, I think we've seen that you can rally people around education because it's still one of the few public goods where a lot of we we rely on it and is yet to be fully 
privatized. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity to bring people together around organizing um, for educational reparations. Uh, and there's also a lot of challenges um, that uh, are still still remain. Uh, I, I would just like to, um, to weigh in and say uh, change takes time, but if we're committed to it, we see change. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I'm hopeful about is that you all are here uh, because you're interested in learning about the topic. And hopefully our time together will activate people in a way that others will also be interested in seeing change in this area. When we first, um, you know, when this idea was first, uh, you know, conceived legislatively uh, by Congressman Conyers, um, he did not have a lot of support. He introduced this bill faithfully year after year, and the support built over time. You know, groups rallied around it. Um, you know, people spent a lot of time and resources into educating the country about why we need a federal approach to reparations, because slavery was a federal crime. So we have to have, in addition to the things that are happening at the state level, we have to have a federal solution as well. And so it didn't start off with a lot of support, and it took a lot of effort and building over time. But now we have more support in the House of Representatives than we've ever had before. We have 122 co-sponsors. That's significant. We have support in the Senate at a level that we haven't had previously. We didn't previously have a Senate companion bill. So change takes time, and it takes commitment. And so we can't expect to see it overnight, but if it's something that we believe in, it's definitely something that we can achieve. And I'll just say, finally, the majority of the Democratic hopefuls, um, it, you know, so far have expressed a commitment uh, to uh, seeing one of the bills uh, get passed. And so that's, that is a huge sea change um, from the fact that this was not on the radar, this was, not a this was not a topic of national conversation before, but now it has a national platform. Um, so I just want to say that to urge us to continue to push for this um, because we can, um, we can see this through to the finish line. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so... Um, let me add a few more challenges um, to here. Uh, <laughs> um, I think we sort of mentioned it, but I'll, I'll talk more about it. Um, the lack of understanding our history, and I mean that both for African American people of African descent and also people of European descent in this country. Um, actually, let me go back to one of my pet peeves about history, which is the 1619 stuff. 1619 is really important, and I love the work that's come out about it, but I really have a problem because 1619 feeds into our Eurocentric notion of, and actually our British notion, because actually the Spanish were the first people who brought people of African descent in chains here to U.S. soil. But we forget about Florida, New Mexico, uh, South Carolina even had um, Spanish bring in African people. And so actually African people were first forcibly brought to the United States territory in the early 1500s. So it's almost an extra hundred years that we should be talking about. Um, and the fact that we're not talking about it allows us to also see ourselves as only British when we're not. 
It allows us to keep a divide between black and brown people because the brown people are the Spanish and we're the British. And so we need to also get away from that and see this as everybody's issue and African people having been here much sooner it's not than the British. We're not British-centric or we shouldn't be. Um, and most of the uh, African historians actually believe Africans brought themselves right to the Americas way before that in canoes and stuff, but luckily at least they brought themselves and that wasn't forced labor. If we want to talk about forced, forced migration, we can talk about this at least starting in the 1500s. But that's the kind of uh, lack of history that I think we're up against. We don't, we just, we, we all live in these mythologies. Um, we don't know enough about all the atrocities and all the, right, and we, we focus on on minute things and simple things, and so then because of those mythologies, we also dismiss things like the call for reparations and that kind of thing. So I think the first issue is, is education, not just the kind that um, my colleague here is talking about, but just basic education of what these real systems are, et cetera. Also, I'm not one of those who thinks that reparations is just for enslavement. I think it's for uh, racial economic oppression throughout the, whatever I said now, 500 years of history. Um, and so for people who keep saying, oh, well, it's over, right? We abolished it, it's over, we did whatever. Well, first of all, enslavement is not over. There's lots of forms of it that still exist, whether it's people in prison who constitutionally are still enslaved, they didn't get freed from the Constitution, whether it's enslavement of uh, unjust labor relations, and people taking our labor power and our labor and not compensating us properly, right? So slavery still exists, but so we either have to talk about it that way or we have to talk about economic injustice and economic oppression. And so I think, again, we need to make sure we're all educated. I think that also helps with white privilege because white privilege, they keep trying to say, well, only this and only these people, only whatever, and don't want to see their own complicity. They don't want to see that they inherited Right, the wealth that they inherited was on the backs of the asset stripping that happened to black and brown people, et cetera. So I think those issues are um, get in the way for all of us, and especially for me to talk about economic reparations. Um, I also, if I could read my own handwriting, um, <laughs> I think we also don't understand the alternatives. So people, you know, I, I actually sometimes have my students debate in class whether we should have financial reparations or not because they are okay with apologies and monuments and that kind of stuff. A lot of people are more comfortable with that, even sending people to college, you know, getting college money, money for college, people are okay with that. But when you really talk about financial reparations, they don't want people to get a check, even my black and brown students. They think that's like the most stupid, horrible thing to do, um, and they don't, they don't, they can't figure out where the money would come from or how we would do it. In my field with solidarity economics and cooperatives, um, one of the things we don't understand is how those are viable, right? Why would we, why would we put hard-earned money into doing education and startups? to do worker co-ops and stuff. And, we, and so we don't know that history either. I, I wrote a book called Collective Courage, which actually tried to 
trace the history of African-American cooperative, the cooperative economics movement and economic cooperation among African-Americans from at least the 1700s um, to show that we have a legacy. We know how to do this. We know how to work together non-exploitatively, how to share wealth, how to create wealth together, how to use it for important things to create our communities. We know how to do it. We got thwarted. In fact, that's one of the articles I wrote for reparations is we also need reparations because co-op efforts got sabotaged. Some people got lynched. The co-ops got burned down. Banks wouldn't lend. Insurance companies upped the insurance, you know, just to stop. Railroads wouldn't um, transport the goods just to stop us from doing economic democracy. So, you know, there's more reasons once you get the right history and once you see what we're doing but once you can see the alternatives, then it's not so far-fetched to say, let's put all this money into making sure these alternatives, that we can do them now and that we can teach our children how to do them so they don't have to buy into a system that's broken and killing us and killing the planet and that kind of thing. Great. Um, so I'm going to ask just one more question before I kind of open it up to the audience. Um, uh, so one, one thing that kind of, because we are thinking about this in, in like futuristic or our panel is focused on kind of the future. Um, I'm wondering how many folks are familiar with the show The Watchmen? Okay, so some folks. All right, so I'll, I'll explain like very briefly the premise. It's a show on HBO, it's a comic book, but the bottom line is in the show, it's kind of an alternate universe to our current times. And one of the things that's happened in this kind of alternate universe to our current times is that rep rep reparations have been paid in some form. Um, and it's, it's, I think, in the, in the course of the show, um, those who have received reparations are, you know, that notion is used as kind of a slur against those folks. And there's a whole movement that rises up against that effort. Um, so my question is kind of related to something that was said on an earlier panel about how racism is kind of a shapeshifter. And you, you can expect that if you were able to achieve reparations, that there will be some type of response to that. I'm wondering what you think the response might be and what we can do to steel ourselves against that response now um, to avoid dealing with it down the road, or if we can do anything to deal with it down the road. Um, I guess I would say I don't know that it can get much worse. <laughs> so I'll take whatever the post-reparations world looks like, right? You know, racism without reparations, racism plus reparations, it's just racism. So. Racism after a remedy is okay, you know, if the alternative is just racism, you know, without a remedy. And I guess I'll say, in addition to that, you know, we have a history of this already. You know, we provided reparations to Japanese Americans who were interned after World War II, and this exact same question came up. You know, how are people going to react? Will there be a backlash against Japanese Americans for receiving reparations and over a billion dollars in reparations and other forms beyond financial reparations were paid to the Japanese community for the crime that was committed against that community. And so the, um, the idea that racism gets worse after a remedy, um, you know, I, I guess I, well, yeah, I don't have a lot of faith in that theory. So, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think you know, I don't know that racism can get any worse. <laughs> um, 
it's already pretty bad. My utopia, sort of, is again, if we have this economic democracy, right, if we have enough people who understand how to do it, who are practicing it, um, in some ways, who the hell cares about racism? Because part of the, one of the biggest problems about racism is that it destroys our ability to feed ourselves, to live in decent housing, to um, to work with dignity, right, et cetera. So some, a lot of the economic things that racism does, if we can circumvent that, right, if we can create our own system that eliminates that kind of economic exploitation so that we're feeding ourselves, we have dignified work, we're living in, gr in good housing, our children can grow up with some opportunities and some control over the world, we own our land collectively, we own our companies collectively, et cetera, then if people want to be racist against us, I mean, that's the least of our problems at that point. I mean, I don't mean to minimize it, but that, I can live with that <laughs> if racism isn't stopping me from feeding my children and staying well and that kind of thing. So if we can think about um, the things that we do, the remedies that we have that can take that power away, the power to keep us poor, and sickly, right, then I'm okay with it, you know, if people want to try to impose other kinds of racism or keep other kinds of racism going. Um, again, I know it sounds a little naive, but I just think if we, we, we need to kind of separate some of the impacts, right, because I'm not sure we're ever going to stop people from trying to use their power against people that they think are different. And I don't think we're ever going to stop some people from thinking they're superior and that that means they can control their people's lives and do whatever. I'm not sure we can do that, but if we can control our part, right, if we can stop the asset stripping, stop the economic exploitation, if we can at least control our peace, I think that's, a, that's something. I don't have anything to add. All right. <laughs> All right, so why don't we open it up to the audience. Uh, I know we have folks with mics. I saw this hand right, go up first, um, right here in the front. Um, and so if you could just keep your question to an actual question, um, that'd be great. Hi, my name is Lee Levin. Um, I'm working with Professor Sonia Jarvis at Baruch College. Um, we are doing a project on uh, reparations in terms of educational equity. So I wanted to ask Casey, mm -hmm. um, how, what do you see as reparations that would be appropriate? Uh, so in 25 big, words or less. Big question for one person. Um, I think I mean it's I think it's too much for me to say what like what I see as the appropriate reparations for historical harms, specifically around the public education system. I think there are ways in which, in a lot of the organizing that we're doing around reparations, that education should be a key component, and so. One of the um, recent um, organizing victories around reparations, uh, and I don't want to um, be inaccurate because I wasn't a part of this effort, but the folks in Chicago that were organizing around, um, there was an officer, John Burge, and other Chicago officers that were torturing um, black Chicagoans in mass. Um, and so the families and the people that have been tortured by the officer um, they started organizing for reparations from the city of Chicago, right? Um, 
there's a youth group that was involved called We Charge Genocide. Um, they got an apology on the record um, from the city of Chicago. Uh, the families of the people who have been tortured were compensated. The educational components that I think are important is in fourth and eighth grade social study classes, the city of Chicago public schools now have to teach about that torture. On the south side of Chicago, they're supposed to open up and create monuments that mark uh, and, and are a kind of physical living uh, monument um, to the survivors, but also to acknowledge that the city of Chicago and its police department were torturing black people in mass across the south side of Chicago. And so I think um, I was a huge victory. I mean, they went to Geneva and the U UN and, and testified, and there was amazing organizing around that. And so I think a lot of the work that people are doing around organizing, there are communal educational things that we can win in those projects. I think about New York City, um, you talk about people's history, right? Like how many people in New York City know that there was a thriving black community in Central Park that was bulldozed? How many people know that on the north side of Staten Island there was a thriving black community that was bulldozed, right? And so I think when we think of educational reparations, um, I think we have to think about how we create and build um, answers that, and build things that are going to teach the whole community um, and that will be here for generations of people to learn uh, the history. And so I think that's something that we need to do a lot of thinking about, do a lot of documenting about, do a lot of accounting for. And it's a process that I as one single, like, right, like there should be a communal process um, that's coming up with more systemic solutions for educational reparations. Gentleman in the green and then. Peace. Peace. All right, I just wanted to correct something first before I start, right? It is not going to be a gradual process, so it should not be a gradual process. You all need to understand that when George Washington and the founding father slave master bastards were upset with England, it did not take 100 years. They did not have to go through all these trials and legislation. The people had to have the will to make the move. And when George Washington and his cronies got ready, they made the move, and there was an American Revolution. There was a move in France for a revolution for the people against Marie and her uh, give the people cake. You have to stop being complacent. These are our ancestors. Many of you have not been to the continent, but for you law students, you should understand that our ancestors never stopped fighting for their freedom from the time they were first corralled to the shores. There's a place in Ghana called Asin Manso and Asin Praso where they were not just put in a housing or jail, they were put down 20, 30 feet in the ground. And if it rained and it got flooded, there was no cover, so they drowned there. When they took them to the shores in places like Elmina, they didn't just have a place for men in a dungeon for, a dungeon for women and a dungeon for men. They had a separate, smaller dungeon for those who they saw were the leaders, and they separated them. And the doors to those places have a space about this big for air and light to come in. This is what your ancestors have been through. You cannot be complacent about this issue. Reparations is not just for enslavement. Reparations is for those people, like in South Carolina, where I and my Moscata is from. South Carolina is called the Rice State. The people that were brought to South Carolina had skills. They were not just brutes, right? 
They went to particular parts of Ghana, I'm just kidding, not Ghana, to Africa, that people knew how to uh, plant the rice crop, and they went specifically for those people. They went specifically for people who knew how to smelt iron. They went specifically for people who knew animal husbandry and could take care of the animals. They went specifically for people that knew other skills. So it's not just the theft of the, the labor, it's not just the theft of the personhood, it's the theft of the particular skills. And then after slavery, when the people had nothing, but they still went out and looked for their, their families and they built communities, the communities were doing better than most white communities. They destroyed those communities. Y'all need to understand that as you go about your legal practice. I hope some of you deal with this issue. They destroyed the, it's the things that people built up from nothing they destroyed. And you need to understand that when you fight for this. So you cannot be complacent. Even today, we have the uh, upper Manhattan empowerment zone and all these empowerment zones and this new thing that Trump uh, put in effect, right? That's supposed to empower the people. The corporations are going to steal that money. They are not going to make that money accessible to your people. And worse, when you still try to build something like my friend Moshud and many others did, they send in inspectors to constantly harass you and tax you. They do not want us to have anything. The only way that we are going to get something is by demanding it. And for those of you, I know there are good white people in here, but there were good white people in Nazi Germany. There were good white people in, during the period of enslavement, Right? Some stood up for us. You, it's for you white people, for you Asian people, you other people that come here don't understand why the African American is in the condition they're in. It's up to you to look at that history and understand that history. We don't need a damn bill. Just recently, the homosexual, or the LGBTQ community in Europe got reparations. They did not have to have an HR 40. They did not have to have a study about the effects of slavery and the history of slave of, of of their oppression as LGBTQ people. Sir, sir, I have to just. So that's what I want to say. We taking this too, too complacently. The only way that we're going to get something sir. is by demanding it, like our brother sir, Roger Graham here and other people. Speaking of demands, please question. All right. Do you have a question? So my question is to you: Is how are you going to change your attitude and your ferocity towards this subject? Because we can't wait for another hundred years. Okay, um, so does anyone want to speak to kind of this notion of, of progress and, and time? Um, that's a hard act to follow. I'll just say that um, I do believe we, make, we need to make the road as we do it, so we need to start practicing these things. Um, so that's sort of my mantra on all this we need. That's why I want to get young people to start their own co-ops and stuff. We need to just start doing this stuff. And then, um, and as we do it, right, we can keep demanding more and more, but we just need to do it. We don't need to wait. We don't need to see if it's okay or even wait until we have enough money or whatever. We just need to start practicing the ways that we know we should be relating to each other and the ways that we know we should be doing economic development in the best ways that we can and just keep doing it. Yeah, I would also say I think there are people that are doing. I mean, someone mentioned Soul Fire Farm earlier, right? Like there are projects in New York and in a lot of places where people are doing it, and I think that's what it takes, right, to start a bigger movement. Is that there are folks doing it now. We should learn about those folks that are doing it now. You can link up with those folks that are doing it now. There's a lot of organizing that's happening in different places too that are bringing that ferocity to their organizing and are freeing people from cages and in a lot of different ways 
that are confronting and challenging the system and doing it now. Thank you. Appreciate your comments too. Yeah. Um, thank you for the wake-up call. Um, I wanted to sort of give homage to some students at Georgetown University we all know who recently did stand up and ask the question of their institution how to address slavery, the, the complicity of their institution with slavery and the legacy of slavery. So we do know young people are aware of these issues. Part of the challenge for us, I think, as as legal minds and as older people who have been aware of the issues for longer is that we see the resistance. We know that legally there's a lot of challenges. Um, it's very difficult. There's no, the human rights framework doesn't exist in this country to fight um, reparations in the courts the way we need to. So what I wanted to ask you all is, um, specifically because we're in an educational institution today, if you could talk about your concept, your concept of reparative justice in institutions, um, you know, maybe educational institutions, but maybe in the ACLU itself, um, you know, what, you know, how can we start? A lot of people are asking, how do we start? We have institutions that have been complicit in all of this history, and um, we're stakeholders in the solution. So just wanted to ask that. So, so I can just say um, the ACLU supports HR 40 and S 1083. Um, we support it similar federal, a similar federal bill um, to provide uh, reparations for Japanese Americans, and that was passed, and people uh, were able to receive repertory justice in that instance. And so that is what uh, the ACLU supports, and that's what we are uh, pushing. I think it's an interesting question. A lot of the work that we do are with people high school age um, in public education institutions. I think what we've learned is we can put a lot of energy in trying to change the institutions um, by working with those institutions and working to change them from within. I think we learn more um, when we try to create spaces in our community outside of those institutions. So for example, a lot of work that a lot of organizations are doing now, which I heard mentioned earlier, is around restorative and transformative justice. We've tried to create spaces within public schools where we're creating more restorative culture within the public school. Um, and when you don't control the institution or system, it's really limited in the type of liberatory work that you're able to do within it. And so for us, we're thinking much more about how we can utilize resources instead of just kind of building a restorative space within a local school, right, to build a restorative place throughout the community, whether that's through restorative justice institutes, whether that's through training our folks in restorative practices and restorative justice, I think we will learn more by first doing in the community and, and figuring out how there's, there's, we're less shackled, right, trying to do it within our own community than we are within a lot of institutions. That's not to say there isn't work to be done in institutions. Um, I can't speak as much about higher ed. I think in public education, a lot of that work is harm reduction. And if our folks are there, I think it's worth people putting energy towards harm reduction in the institutions um, where folks are. Yeah, I'm not sure I can add much because I, I think I agree with you that a lot of it is that what we do in our communities. Um, I do think that there's certainly a role, especially like the students at Georgetown and other places, um, to force your institution to, to, to reckon with its history and to do something about it, if only free tuition um, for certain people, right? But I don't, but it's, 
but those kinds of uh, gestures, I guess, are so superficial in some way that there's got to be more. So I think it is more about, right, we need ways to think about uh, enhancing group rights and, right, the solutions really have to be about the community and about community control and group rights. And so whatever we can do to keep pushing at that level and then from the bottom up, get demands happening from the bottom up, I think is going to be the thing that will be most, um, I don't know, meaningful seems like such a horrible word. But anyway, most transformative, how about that? If we go back to, um, I was using that language from the guy at FOR about, you know, how do we not repeat, right? How do we not be complicit? We really have to change systems. And so we have to commit ourselves to changing systems regardless of where they are. Um, FOR, I thought, was also interesting because they were looking at how they were complicit and stuff and they changed it by creating new fellowships and new focuses and things like that. So certainly all that can happen, but it's not enough. We really have to figure out how to do that really deep um, paradigm shift system change work. Question in the back. Uh, where does this uh, campaign fit within current uh, competing models of uh, socialism versus capitalism? Well, the, um, the coward's answer to that is that I try to stay away from those two. Uh, I, I try not to be bifurcated like that. Um, that's why I focus on solidarity economics and economic cooperation. Um, I don't want to get into a huge critique, but you know, I have critique of socialism as well as critique of capitalism. Um, and socialism is kind of a reformist thing. It's probably better than not, uh, than still having racialized capitalism, but I think we need to, again, go much deeper. So I'd rather look at what the principles of how we want to operate are and not worry about the titles, the names, the, um, the camps, or the denominations, right? But let's think about the principles. And to me, the principles are what? Non-exploitation, non-hierarchy, right? Community well-being, well-being for everybody, empowerment, decent, uh, decent work and control over work, control over assets, um, those kinds of things. So let's think about, I, I, I prefer to think about it that way. We have a question. Oh, oh right here. All right, thank you. Yep. Uh, I'm with an organization called the December 12th Movement, and I'm also an attorney. I was one of the attorneys on the suit the Afro-American descendants uh, litigation on slavery that Professor Wesley talked about. And, as, and I think it's important in terms of this question is not so much directed to the panel because the panel has spoken to a lot of it, but to, to the audience itself. The, the litigation, when we went into the litigation, we understood the limitations of the legal system in this country. But what the litigation did was it stimulated a discussion all around the country in terms of what should reparations be and what, and, and that's what I think the purpose of this is, for us to conceptualize what it should be, to discuss it, but we also understood you couldn't have litigation without a real mass movement to make things happen. The history of this country is that any progressive litigation came as a result of, litig of, of mass movements of people in the streets, not because of some great litigators, that that was the, the end result. So that people have to understand that. And I, one thing I wanted to add that I think was missing from this discussion, um, 
In 2001, the United Nations had a World Conference Against Racism in Durban, South Africa. That was the first uh, international body that recognized that the transatlantic slave trade and slavery were crimes against humanity and that they needed to be, there needed to be reparations. So we have to understand that. It was mentioned in one of the other, other uh, panels around the international, the importance of the national and international. Tomorrow, Friday, is the anniversary of the commemoration of the assassination of Malcolm X. One of the most important things he did was draw the connections between the struggle of African people here and around the world. So I think in terms of people summing up what this, you know, in terms of following up what this should be, it's got to be people here taking that out, not relying on a few people, but taking this, this, this question out, struggling for it, and understanding that, it, that if we're going to, that, at least from my perspective, from my organization's perspective, reparations is the key issue for African people in the 21st century. And I say African people throughout the diaspora because it's going to speak to our relationship to whatever structures exist and the demand and the struggle for it is going to address the question that was just raised around the relationship between capitalism and socialism because I don't think that capitalism can handle the demand for reparations, um, particularly as it, as it solidifies. So it's really, it's more of a statement than a question. I'm sorry I took advantage of that. But I think, <laughs> I think it was... It's really important in terms of people going forward to understand what this, what this represents, but it's key to our existence in the century. We are being, black folks are being disappeared. Mm -hmm. And if we don't understand that, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to be, we're gonna, we're gonna be gone. But, so I would just take that and, and, and for people to, to raise up that issue, um, not just regard this as, oh, this was a nice discussion tonight, but this is really life and death. And I I just to to build off of that. Um, so yes, we're at a law school, and folks should bring their legal expertise into the movement in all the ways that they can. But you should also bring your full selves into the movement in all the ways you can, right? Like there are a lot of community organizations, there are a lot of grassroots organizations. They might be looking for somebody that you know is going to bring their art skills to something. They might be looking at folks that are going to roll up their sleeves and help people start. Uh, a, a cooperative, right, like an urban farming cooperative. And so, yes, like we need the legal skills that you're building here, but bring your full selves into the movement and connect with organizations. And you'll see that they, a lot of times our arms are open for folks to bring their full selves into the movement and utilize the multifaceted skills that you may have. Um, and yes, the litigation too, but yeah. A question in the back here. Yes, hi. I just want to know how can brown folks actually um, be as, um, I won't even say allies, but solidarity in the movement of reparations just because, as it was mentioned, in the Spanish, if anything, with colonialism and the aftermath, and there are, we are descendants of Africans and itself, but because of colorism and all of the goddamn isms. I just want to know how can the movement become more together because it is a shared struggle. Well, um, back, I guess, to understanding our history, right? Because as you said, right, brown people are actually people of African descent. Um, the powers that be have tried to separate that and tried to make us think we weren't all the same and we weren't all together. Also, a lot of brown folks were enslaved. Right, so I mean, there's a direct correlation there too, and so we have to keep thinking of them as separate. 
I mean, I know there's some cultural and language differences and whatever, but if we talk about this as the same history and the same history of exploitation and history of enslavement and continuing history of enslavement, I think that helps. So some of it is just the language and, and, and understanding the history better. And then I do think we have to resist the um, divide and conquer that the, um, that the colonialists and imperialists keep using and have used, right? I mean, they try to divide us from the continent of Africa, but they also divide us in the Americas, right, and make us think we're, it's different sites and different issues, and that because we speak different languages, that means we don't have the same experiences, and so I think we have to resist all that. Another question? Where's the, yep, in the green right here. Hi, um, I'm an undergraduate student and I like study reparations and decoloniality. And my question is being that um, black people were forced to build this settler colonial state that only white people will and only ever benefit from, I think it's important that in this conversation we talk about indigenous people as well and how this settler colonial state has been built by black people, but to the violence and erasure of indigenous people. So I'm curious as to how there are efforts being made with black and indigenous people in the fight for reparations, because I feel like the goal is to not reiterate this system of violence, but to work in solidarity together so that we can get to freedom, because freedom is the goal, not just like reiterating the system. Great question. <laughs> um, I agree. <laughs> uh, and I don't mean to laugh. I'm just laughing because I can't think of anything better to say than what you already said. Um, I think, yes, I think we need to combine, right, the issues of exploitation and asset stripping. I'm, I'm thinking of all the different ways that land was taken away and genocide and bodies taken away and wealth denied, that kind of thing. Um, there have been a few reparations cases that Native Americans have won, but they haven't done enough or, right, and it's also another group that African Americans are seen, are supposed to see as separate and different from us, and so every time they separate us and disunite us, they win, right? Um, the case, some of the cases for reparations probably could be even stronger if you add genocide and asset stripping of native peoples. Um, and then some people have used the examples that they've gotten a little bit as examples that you can do, that reparations are possible, right? But again, usually made to us to think, okay, well then we have to be angry that they got it and we didn't. And I think you're right that that doesn't help. Yeah, I would agree. I think people of African descent and indigenous people in this country have claims on land and labor that were stripped that coexist, but I think in a lot of ways, you know, it's set up as if they, they clash, right? And so I think we have to be really careful about that and we have to build the relationships and solidarity so that they do coexist and lift each other up. I think we have time for one more question here in the front. Um, Oh, no. Oh, oh, two more questions. All right, two more, two more. There and there. Okay. So we've spoken a lot about um, 
money and reparations coming from federal sources and from state sources. But I was curious of, about whether there are any instances or any work being done around individual accountability. A friend and I were speaking recently about how, you know, you can always, if there is ever a trail, it's the money trail, right? We know who owned slaves. We know how many slaves they owned. We know what families those are. Is there any work being done towards tracking their descendants and actually trying to approach individual families who have been growing wealth in order to get some of that wealth back? And in addition, are there any movements to try to find out where that wealth went and then to tax people according to wealth, not according to income, in order to stop perpetuating some of the economic genocide that we have had in this country? I know there is a movement now in terms of around land, right? Like there's a movement now with folks that are doing a lot of organizing around land and reclaiming land where they are like pushing to get white folks that own land in certain places uh, to give that land over to black farmers and other folks that are trying to build, um, build out and reclaim some of that land. I don't know the full kind of accounting of, of how that's working. I would also say in terms of the individuals, I think yes, but I think there's a way if we put our energy towards individuals that in some ways we have to be really careful that we're not letting the government off. And so I just think that we've got to be careful how much energy we put into trying to find the individuals that profited. The, the system was put in place for individuals to be able to profit. And so I think the major kind of accounting that has to happen is, is with the government. So... Um I do agree that public money is maybe the most important and maybe the most realistic money to go for, but I actually really believe in taxing wealth um, because really in the United States all wealth has been on the back of exploited people, especially black and brown people. All wealth as it exists now is accumulated from those times when um, we people of African descent couldn't even own our own bodies, let alone own any other property or anything. And so I do think that if we're talking about reparations, that asking for a wealth tax makes a lot of sense um, and should be one of the things we ask for because um, I actually wrote this somewhere once. I actually think it should be illegal to make more than like 10% of profits. <laughs> Um, and to have billions of dollars, I think we should, it should be illegal and we should be taxing it. I know that's not going to get me very far, and because I say that, people aren't going to believe in my co-op stuff. But anyway, <laughs> if we want to be honest about it, right? Um, everybody, everybody who's wealthy in this country right now are, it has something to do with cumulative exploitation, be it inheritance or the fact that we have certain jobs that other people couldn't get, or right, and that um, profits are made because people are exploited, et cetera, et cetera. It, you know, at some point we have to come to terms with that. And um, if we really are a moral society that believes in democracy and the well-being of everybody, then that kind of wealth accumulation should be illegal, right? And especially since most of it was because we stripped the assets of other people to get there, or at least somebody in the past did. Um, if we have, we have to recognize that and do something about it. 
uh, I think we have time for one last question right here. Uh, thank you. I'm going to do this in 30 seconds so we can eat. Um, my name is Mirna. I'm a non-black Arab because there are Arabs who are black. Um, and I just want to address something. Spanish folks are not brown. I'm horrified at the idea. They're not brown. Um, and also, it's what I would want to plug, and it's not a question, I'm sorry, but it's like... <laughs> This is a, more about, this is not just about money, right? It's more than money, but currently we talk a lot about taxes, but we're not looking, for example, that um, we give $8.4 million per day to Israel to kill children, occupy lands, displace people, and actually hold black Palestinian, non-Jewish black Palestinians in open-air camps. And so their money is there. There is $8.4 million that we're giving every damn day to Israeli military forces. And so I just wanted to draw that line that we start thinking, like, for example, when your students are, are like, no, we can't afford it. And you're like, yeah, actually, we, we can. Um, and so thank you. And I hope that this panel shouldn't be repeated ever again, that you're busy not surviving but thriving. And I really thank you for the time that you gave us. Yep. All right, so I think that's the end of our, our conversation. I'll welcome Clarence up here to give us some closing remarks. Thank you. Please join me in giving our panel one more round of applause. So on behalf of the Review of Law and Social Change, as one of the colloquia editors, I want to thank everybody for joining us tonight. Uh, for this conversation. Of course, we would be remorse without acknowledging some of the special folks who made tonight possible. I want to begin by acknowledging all of our speakers for this evening, uh, Nikishi Tehasa, Catherine Frankie, Robert Wesley, Queen Mother, Masharika Jawanza, David Ragland, Joyce Hope Scott, Jennifer Bellamy, Casey Foster, and Jessica Gordon-Namer. Can you please join me in giving them another round of applause? I also want to thank our moderators for this evening, uh, Narenda Hyatt, Deborah Archer, and Vincent Sutherland. And we have a number of partners that we want to acknowledge this evening as well, beginning with uh, the Black Allied Law Students Association here at NYU School of Law, the Office of Student Affairs, the Center on Race, Inequality, and the Law, and the Center on Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging. And then lastly, we wanted to thank a number of our co-sponsors, including Alternative Breaks, uh, American Constitutional Society, APALSA, the Christian Legal Fellowship, uh, DALSA, LALSA, uh, we have a lot of ALSAs here, y'all. Um, NELSA, we want to thank uh, NACOBRA. We want to thank the National Lawyers Guild, both at NYU and New York City chapters. We want to thank PILSA, the Public Interest Law Student Association, uh, PREP, the Prison Reform and Education Project, Rise Indivisible. We also want to thank Law Women, Law Students for Economic Justice, um, and those are our co-sponsors. And then I, I want to um, conclude by saying this. Um, we have um, held space for a very difficult and heavy conversation. Um, I am so grateful for the people who are in the room today, uh, but I want to hold space for the people who are not. Um, my family is from Alabama. Um, everyone on my mother's side, uh, for as long as we have been in this country, have been. Um, 
uh, Alabama has been a part of our story, and um, I'm thinking about my grandparents tonight um, who aren't in this room. Uh, my grandparents grew up in the Jim Crow South. Um, they had to attend uh, segregated schools. Um, they had to deal with the economic uh, brutalism that was Jim Crow and the totality that it, uh, the totally um, problematic nature that uh, Jim Crow imposes on people. Um, and I, I want to, um, for us to hold space for those folks and to have, I think, uh, what many people have recognized tonight is that sense of urgency coming out of this conversation, that a lot of times these conversations can feel very esoteric and academic. After all, we are in a law school. Um, but nonetheless, um, there is that sense of urgency. We should not allow for another generation of black people um, to be subject to the violence of this American state. We should not allow another generation of young black children to have to grow up um, wondering if the Constitution speaks to them too. And so I see our mandate as a law journal, as a law community, as a community of folks who are invested in creating a more just and equitable society. I see our mandate is closing the space that exists between where black people exist and where the Constitution aspires for us as a country to be. So as we uh, leave tonight, the last thing I want to say is not only should we have that mandate for creating change, but we should have that mandate for hope as well. Because having those conversations with my grandparents growing up, um, if they could maintain a sense of hope despite all of the challenges that they face, none of us are let off the hook for maintaining a sense of hope that change can happen, that this country can change, that every empire, including this American empire, must fall. So I ask that you join. <laughs> so I ask that each of us uh, carry on that mandate, that you join the work of all our panelists, that have spoken tonight in creating that society, to creating that beloved community uh, that Dr. King spoke about. With that being said, please enjoy dinner. First of all, thank you everyone who's in the room for joining us. It's lovely to see you all. Uh, it's obviously particularly lovely to welcome members of the Robeson Rod uh, Project uh, like Kathy, who's hobbling over to the front of the room there, and Woody, and uh, obviously Andy. Great to have you all with us. And for those of you who are juniors at the School of Theology, uh, we would love to tell you more about the Robeson Project. Uh, Ashley would be a great person to talk to. Uh, David Stark would be a great person to talk to. Um, I've, I've occasionally been known to say a thing or two about the Robeson Project. Um, but uh, obviously, uh, we want to get you all involved as much as possible. Um, without further ado, let me start the uh, webinar that's happening today and, and let you know how it's all going to work. So we are delighted to welcome two guests. Uh, the first is Ebony Davis. And the second is Miles Aceves Lewis. Uh, I will give you their bios uh, in, in a moment. But we're going to have each of them make a brief presentation uh, about their experiences in their academic institutions, uh, continuing the work towards reparations for the descendants of the enslaved. And after they've made their presentations, I'm going to ask them some questions, uh, and then uh, hopefully that will issue in, in the discussion. 
and at that point it would be wonderful we'll open the floor up for you all to to ask questions and participate in this discussion more broadly too i'm sure you are all aware that this semester the university of the south is really trying to under the leadership of the Robeson project get the conversation about reparations started and it's going to therefore be really helpful to talk with folks at institutions where that conversation has been going on rather longer than it has here and indeed where concrete change has already started to be made. So let me hand over to our two speakers. Uh, I will give you their bios as I introduce them. So we're going to start with Miles, seeing as Miles is in an airport, which is hugely impressive, and might jump on an airplane at any moment. So, Miles, uh, let me just introduce you to everybody here. Um, Miles began studying at Georgetown University in the fall of 2018, right when advocacy around the GU 272, those are the slaves that Georgetown uh, originally owned and then sold, uh, took shape in a student-led referendum. Miles has spent the last three years chronicling student activism on campus, studying themes of restorative justice, reconciliation, conflict resolution, and reparation, and has written a book about what he calls the Georgetown Reparations Movement. After graduating, Miles intends to teach for a few years through Teach for America before attending graduate school. And you can count this as a sort of interview for the School of Theology at Swanee, if you want, Miles. <laughs> we would love to have you here. Yes, definitely. All right, without further ado, I'll hand over to Miles. Hi there, everyone. Just want to make sure that y'all can hear me all right. Yeah. Yes. Okay, wonderful, wonderful, thank you. Um, well, I, I hope that you're well and thriving. It's so good to be here. Um, I'm very sorry that I can't be speaking to you in a, in a traditional setting, um, and, um, but I really hope to connect with, with, with many of you down the line, um, and, and I know that, that, uh, that Andrew can pass, that, pass along my information to anyone that would like so I can answer more questions and, and help out in any way I can. Um, I'm really excited to, to speak with you about uh, reparations movements, about organizing and advocacy, um, and, and how to lead on a small scale um, the, the work that this country and, and this world will have to undergo um, during the next several hundred years. Um, to, to, to bring it back to my institution, um, to give a brief history, Georgetown used to participate heavily um, in the trade of enslaved persons. Um, the university bought and sold slaves. Uh, sorry, enslaved persons, and, and even let students pay for their tuition by renting um, enslaved persons um, at the university. Um, in 1838, Georgetown sold 272 uh, enslaved persons uh, so that they could pay off outstanding urgent debts. Um, this wasn't the largest or the last sale um, that, that Georgetown made, but what makes this sale so important um, is that without it, Georgetown University wouldn't, wouldn't exist today. Um, and so that's why there, uh, there is a lot of mention about these 272 um, and, and about figuring out how to, um, how to address this and, and how to redress the problems. Um, over, over the past five or six years, my institution has gone through much uh, on the road towards responding to our history of holding enslaved persons. Um, in 2015, Georgetown formed a working group to study Georgetown's history um, and come up with recommendations for how we as a community ought to respond to that history. 
Um, that working group was comprised of faculty, students, staff, um, alumni, people outside of the university um, who were consulting, um, and of course, um, the descendants of what we call the GUP 72. Um, some of the recommendations that that, that working group made um, in 2016 have been met and some have not been met. Um, ultimately, how a university decides to uh, allocate its resources plays a big role um, in reparative justice and, and just how much you can do. Um, there are a lot of places where this sort of work is not top of mind, where, where it is not that high of a priority. So um, understanding what your university's stance is and, and, and understanding um, how much they are willing to devote to this is really, really important um, so you can get a to get a scope of what you should do. Not that it should limit your imagination in any way. Um, if, if you look on Georgetown Slavery Archive, um, which you can access online to see proposals for memorials or uh, written or visual responses to Georgetown's history by students that came before me um, and, and faculty members that came before me, you'll, you'll find articles that were written in the newspaper um, and, and pieces, um, pieces by, uh, by film students in response to this history. Um, and then more recently in 2019, uh, these discussions that we were having all over campus sort of culminated in the student-led referendum, what I call the Georgetown Reparations Movement. Um, this referendum that was proposed by the students uh, would require each student to pay a fee that would go to a fund, and this fund would go towards equitably assisting uh, the descendants of those that Georgetown enslaved hundreds of years ago. So, you know, sort of a, a reparations scheme. Um, this, this referendum was highly contentious, and, and, and I go more into that in, the, in, in my narrative in my book. And um, ultimately, it was not implemented there. Um, but from that, from that movement, there has been much work responding to Georgetown's history, um, and I have been a big part of that, along with faculty and other students, um, students who are, who are coming after me. I'm a senior. Um, there are there are new classes that are being formed. Um, just to help students formulate their responses to this history. I um, was a teaching assistant last, uh, last fall for a class that um, educated the class of 2022, or sorry, class of 2024 um, about this history um, and helped them to um, formulate responses and to, to work on projects, um, either work on existing projects or make, make their own projects that could, um, that could uh, help students formulate their, their responses. Um, there's a, there's, for the past two and a half years, I've been working on a documentary that's produced uh, by a faculty member um, about the, the individual descendants. Um, there's a few of them uh, attend Georgetown University or, or have recently graduated from Georgetown University. So um, there's a documentary about, about them that's still in the works. Um, and then we ended up changing uh, the names of two of our buildings on campus um, and named them after enslaved persons who were part of what we called GUP 72. Um, a big factor, uh, recently, you know, a, a great deal of our work has been suspended due to, to COVID-19. It's, it's been difficult to organize during that period. Um, and many student leaders uh, graduated in 2019 and 2020. Um, so it, it's been difficult as we sort of find our footing here again, sort of our, our work's been sort of passed into the wind. Um, but there are stirrings. There absolutely are stirrings. Um, thankfully, I just spoke yesterday um, to a classroom full of students about my experience on the ground. These are students in the class of 2024, 2025. Um, and these are, um, I was talking to them um, about my experiences and, and answering questions and connecting with them um, and getting to hear about their vision, um, hear about um, their plans and about um, 
what they're inspired to do in response to this history. Um, there, there's so much work that's being done. Uh, most, most of my work today involves just that, talking to students um, who, are, who are coming after me about this history and about what is needed. Um, so it, 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 most of the work that, that, that's happening here at Georgetown is very informal, right? Um, there's little to no structure, and, and all that's being done is it's contingent on passionate faculty and passionate students. Um, and, and unfortunately, uh, the, the lifespan of these passionate students is very short um, at the university. Um, so there, there, there's no formal mechanism to, uh, to respond to this history um, that would be enforced in perpetuity. So as of, as of now, there are many short-term projects and, and many classes that are being taught, um, but there's, there's no formal, formal response yet um, besides, the, besides the renaming of the building. Thank you, Miles. Um, could, I just want to get a couple of clarifications on a couple of things that you mentioned, especially because uh, it may be unfamiliar territory to some of our folks in the room here. Um, but you mentioned the, the, the payment of a fee that, that students contributed towards the reparations funds. Did I hear you say that? Uh, so and, and could, could you just say a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's absolutely. So there was a proposal um, that, that students brought forth to um, to the, the student senate. Um, you know, there, there are several ways that you can make change here on campus as a student, and one of them is to create a referendum and get it to the student senate, and then that referendum, after passing the senate, would go to a, a, a student vote, the entire student body, and then if the student passes that, the student body passes that, then it would go to the board of trustees and they do the other final say. So. Um, it was a referendum that, um, yes, would, would, would require a, a $27.20 fee uh, that students would pay each semester. Um, and, and the money that's raised, every student would pay it. And, and the money that's raised from, uh, from that, from the collection of that student would go through the funds um, that would be managed by descendants. Um, and, and that would, that would go to equitably assisting uh, the descendants of, of, um, of the enslaved persons that were uh, sold uh, in 1838. Um, and so that referendum made it past the student senate, uh, it made it past the student vote, student body vote, but the board of trustees um, did not um, did not go forward with it. So um, it it, um, it it did not take effect. And remind us how many students voted in favor of this? Yeah, it was twenty five hundred. It was over, over twenty five hundred students. So about you know about a third of the student body. A third of the student body. Thank you. Thank you. Excuse me, focusing in on the money, but you know, I feel like we've done all the research and we've begun the renaming, but we've never talked about money here. So, um, uh, thank you ever so much, Miles. That was a great presentation. And considering we also had to listen to the announcers on the tannoy, uh, <laughs> you were remarkably clear. So thank you. Um, now let me hand over to Ebony Davis. Uh, who is the Associate for Programming and Historical Research for Reparations at Virginia Theological Seminary. She holds an MA in Museum Studies and Historical Preservation from Morgan State University and is currently pursuing her PhD in African Diaspora History at Howard University. For nearly 15 years, she has operated within the field of public history, working for local, state, and national institutions in the US and in Africa. So, Ebony, 
The floor is yours. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, I bring you greetings from Virginia Seminary, um, an Episcopal Seminary in Alexandria. And uh, as Dr. King mentioned, I am the coordinator for the reparations program. Dr. Joe Thompson and I work together to um, implement the program that was announced two years ago, actually, in September of 2019. The seminary announced the creation of a reparations endowment fund with the intent to research and recognize the specific experiences of Black people who toiled under the oppression of the seminary during slavery and during the period of Jim Crow and segregation. And so the endowment that we have um, is $1.7 million, and it's fully funded by the seminary as part of its, its commitment to recognizing the racism in its past and working towards healing in the future. And since that announcement two years ago, the endowment has increased from $1.7 million to $2.2 million. And there have been additional funds created and added to support the work of African-American congregations um, that specifically have historical ties to the seminary. Um, one of them is Oakland Baptist Church, which is a black church around the corner from the seminary that um, many of the individuals who worked here during the period of Jim Crow during their lunch break would go and build that church, were working to build that church. Um, not just Jim Crow, actually, um, Reconstruction and Jim Crow. And then um, another church is uh, Me Memorial Episcopal Church, which is, which is a historically black Episcopal church not far from the seminary as well, that um, we often have had um, a lot of seminarians come from. So uh, those additional funds also are there to help create pro pro programs that promote justice and inclusion on campus, and then most importantly, to elevate the work and voices of African-American alumni and clergy within the Episcopal Church, especially at historically Black congregations. So that's the, the, the money and the additional funds that the seminary is putting towards the reparations program. Um, those are the, the, the three main kind of areas that that money goes into. Um, so our reparations program is a two-fold initiative. It includes a research team, which is comprised of historical and genealogical experts, and then an implementation effort, which is comprised of the Office of Multicultural Ministries, like I mentioned earlier, Joe, Dr. Joe Thompson and myself. And the research team is tasked with gathering the historical documentations of Black persons who labored at VTS during slavery and or Jim Crow with, while conducting genealogical research to find living descendants. The implementation effort is tasked with the administration of the program, which includes fostering relationships with the descendant families to assess their needs and desires as beneficiaries, managing the seminary's commitment to other aspects of the reparations program and determining the program's policy. So in essence, at this stage of our program, we're doing pretty much three main things, and that's the research and the identification of individuals for the purpose of making annual cash payments to the direct descendants of Black people who worked or who were enslaved at the seminary between its founding in 1823 in the year we admitted our first black student in 1951. Um, 
we respectfully refer to those direct descendants as our shareholders and that to be a shareholder, it means that you are a member of the generation of each family that is closest to the enslaved person or Jim Crow era employee um, that still has a living family member. So to date within that, there have been 19 payments made to members of seven different families in the Alexandria area who have ties to an African-American who worked at the seminary during the Jim Crow era. Our research with the antebellum period is coming along, but we have not made any reparations payments to anyone um, identified in that research because we still haven't found living descendants from those individuals. We have a number of names of people from that time period, but we are still doing the genealogy to try to find their descendants. And um, the second thing that's really a priority that we're working on right now is awarding grants to individuals within the church that are either Black alumni of the seminary or working at a historically Black church. And so, so far we've awarded one grant and by the end of this week, tomorrow, I'll be sending a letter to approve the second um, grant and let them know that they have also will be receiving those funds. And then the biggest, um, most important priority of the program that we're really focusing on right now is building relationships. Virginia Theological Seminary has had a very negative and poor relationship with the local Black community in Alexandria, Virginia. And this this Black community has been a staple in this area since before the Civil War. So the descendants and the people that are living in this area today are descendants of people who were enslaved in this area or who fled to this area um, when the, during the Civil War. And so they have generations of individuals who are here who have always had a negative relationship with the seminary, not all of them, but many of them. And so the goal of this program, a priority of this program is to build a new relationship with the community. And that's what a lot of this work is. Um, the payments are great. It's not a lot of money. We're not changing anybody's lives, life with this money, but we are um, slowly, very slowly building relationships with the community, which um, we hope will go a long way. And seeing as though every person, every shareholder gets an annual payment in perpetuity, and they get to leave their, their share to whoever they designate as their beneficiaries. We do hope that that fund will grow and those payments will grow and become something that is substantial to repair what has been done. But in the meantime, um, a lot of my work, just about all of my work, um, involves that very personal touch of working with every shareholder, talking to every descendant, um, really engaging and getting to know the community and, and, and making sure that they know that they are welcome. Um, their ancestors are the reason this seminary is still here almost 200 years later. They built and sustained this seminary, and um, they have just as much right, if not more, than every student, staff, and faculty person um, does on this camp to be on this campus and so um some some success stories that we've seen with that um back in i guess that was march we hosted a birthday party for one of the shareholders it was his 77th birthday and um we had a meeting with him and his family and the dean and he mentioned that his birthday was coming up and the dean offered to host his birthday here 
and um, it was about 30 or so of his family members all came, some of some of who were shareholders because a lot of the shareholders are related, and even though they come from different families, they've all intermarried because, again, Alexandria is had a historic black community that has been here forever, so everybody's related. Everybody's somebody's cousin, um, and they were all here and enjoyed, you know, a nice dinner, and the, the the biggest takeaway was Mr. Wander is his name. Um, he said he wanted, he liked that he was able to come to campus and, and walk around in a way that his ancestors never would have been allowed to. And his particular ancestor that was here was a gentleman named Wallace Wander, who was a free black man who um, would contract his services out to the seminary, both before and after the Civil War. Um, so, Again, just a quick recap: the, the 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 reparations program here at the seminary at BTS is is making cash payments to black people who labored at the seminary, both as enslaved persons and as free people during the Jim Crow era. If you were a black person who worked here between 1823 and 1951, whether you were enslaved or free, um, it is our goal to find your living descendants and offer reparations. Um, we have had people who have decided not to take them, and we we respect that right as well. But the idea for us, the goal for us, is to hopefully build a new relationship with the community through this these payments and through our other reparative effort, efforts to hopefully start anew and, and atone for what's been done in the past. Brilliant. Thank you very much, um, and, and uh, what a wonderful exposition of all that VTS is doing. And um, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the money. That's good. You knew that was coming. I, was I figured, I, yeah, money. I figured I'd just know that <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> Fantastic. So I've got three general questions that I've already shared with our panelists. Um, uh, one, which is about individuals and how we all as individuals uh, can help. Uh, one about institutions, uh, uh, and finally one about the church. Um, and I'm going to take those in reverse order because I think uh, both of you communicated something uh, in response to the first two, but, but um, I, I really want to know about the church. Um, so obviously, uh, we're a seminary embedded within a university. Uh, it's an institution of the Episcopal Church. VTS, likewise, is an institution of the Episcopal Church, Georgetown of the Catholic Church. How have you found that the church has helped in your movement towards reparations? And how have you found that the church has hindered what you've wanted to do? Um, and as I'm always aware that Miles may be jumping on the plane at any moment, can I hand over to Miles first? How has the church helped and how has the church Ended what you all are doing at Georgetown. Thank you, thank you. Um, so, uh, as, um, as as you may or may not know, we have uh, a number of Jesuit priests uh, who, are, who live on campus. They they teach courses. They're um, a big part of life on campus, especially um, leading services and and, and uh, special events and things like that. They've been a big part um, of the conversation. There uh, were uh, a number of Jesuit priests. Um, on the working group that I mentioned earlier, um, there are a number of Jesuit priests who have been talking to, uh, to direct, directly to descendants um, in, in, um, 
in, in confidential meetings that have been held by the Kellogg Foundation. Um, so there have been, you know, many boots on the ground, if you will, um, that have been um, engaged in this discussion and in this conversation. I think more generally, more philosophically, at Georgetown, we have a set of Jesuit principles, um, and, and many students, whether Catholic or not, take them, uh, take them to heart and have them really, really play out in their lives. Um, care of personality, care for the whole person, um, the process of Ignatian discernment, um, you know, really, it really comes in handy whether, whether you're a person of faith or not. Uh, but specifically, we're, we're called to be men and women for others. Um, and that, that being, that means being, men and women for each other, the people in Ward 8, um, and, and ultimately it means being men and women for the people, um, for, for the descendants, um, for the descendant community that is dispersed around America principally. Um, so that, that, that principle is, is definitely integral to, to what I say, what I do, and, and the work that I commit myself to. And you can see it, um, you know, you can see it playing out in the hearts and minds of those that are, that are committed to this work. Um, obviously, there's a sense of duty as people who benefit from this institution, um, but um, above all, there's that um, sort of ingrained concept that we're called to be men and women brothers. Thank you, Miles. Um, Ebony. Um, yes, well, like you said, the BTS is part of the Episcopal Church, so. Um, but it is still a, a independent private institution. And so it, the church does not necessarily hinder the work done because it does not necessarily have a say in what our specific reparations program does. And because, because the dean just announced that we were going to do this um, and we just started researching it and dived in, there was no um, necessarily, he didn't have to get approval from the, the church, but he did have to get approval mm -hmm. from our board of trustees. Where I have found mm -hmm. that there might be interference or hindering from the church is in our grant process, um, mm -hmm. because as mm -hmm. as a as alum or as historically black churches apply for the grant, um, because of the setup and the organization of the church, they do need to have permission from their bishops. And some bishops, this is probably not a surprise to anybody, some bishops are more excited when they hear reparations and some are not so excited when they hear the word reparations. And so if you are at a church um, and you have a bishop who is not that excited about this, then it makes it harder for you to get that letter of approval um, when trying to apply for this grant. But mm -hmm. we can work with that too. And we've, we've actually had that happen. And that's, so that's one way that I have seen the church hinder the work. Um, overall, I find that the Episcopal Church has been uh, uh, the the body, the people, the 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 congregations have been really wonderful supporters of this program. They have they are eager to learn and see what they can take from what we're doing and implement in their own parish and what they can do in their own diocese and how the conversations that they've been having about race and reconciliation and reparations, how they can take it from a conversation to actual action by way of things happening here at the seminary. So overall, it's been, um, I've, I've found that um, a lot of the conversations and meetings that I have with churches in different dioceses, um, they're very interested in becoming working partners and so that we can do this type of work 
um, together and not in a silo like it has been. Yeah, I, I would I would echo that, Ebony, very much uh, here at Swanee. That has been the experience of those on the Roberson project that the church really wants to know more about its history and is asking for our support in, in how to uncover uh, its, its hidden and horrific past. Um, and, and therefore we, I think, offer our services to the church. But part of the reason I ask the question is it strikes me that the Episcopal Church is quite ahead of the game in these discussions about reparations. And I sometimes wonder whether we in Swanee could leverage the church a bit more uh, in conversations about reparations, seeing that numerous dioceses have pledged amounts in their diocesan conventions toward reparation. And clearly, our sister seminary in Virginia has also uh, gotten the ball rolling with a 1.7 million fund. Um, so I, I personally think at Swanee that the church is, is a great uh, asset in our move towards making reparation. My, my second question, therefore, has to do with uh, what institutions can do. Um, and... Uh, Obviously, institutions are strange beasts, right? Uh, no one person makes an institution, um, and we're all tied to our own uh, institutional particularities. But I'm wondering what you think Swanee has to learn about how an institution can make reparation for the harm that it has caused. Uh, and again, this can this can be pluses and minuses. You know, were there bad things about getting your institutions? Uh, I'm thinking, Miles, you mentioned, for instance, uh, you know, this this demand that the students were were having for some sort of uh, reparation funds that then got squashed. Uh, but but how can institutions help in this movement towards reparation? And Miles, if you can go first again, that would be great. Thanks. Yeah, it's just like you said, uh, no one person makes up an institution. There's so many stakeholders um, for an institution, right? Um, there's the alumni, there's the faculty, there's the administration, there's the students, um, there are uh, donors. Um, yeah, third, third party institutions. Um, in, the, in the case of Georgetown, there's the Catholic Church. Um, and um, Parents uh, and uh, you know the the DC community even um, there's so many stakeholders for an institution and so you know just making sure that you have your bases covered is so so important right um, at Georgetown we uh, we lobbied the students very very heavily uh, most of the student senators towards the beginning of the process but we weren't really communicating with the board of directors um, who ultimately had the final say right um, we didn't begin to plant seeds with them. Um, early on and, and begin to have conversations with them. Um, I think that many of us believe that media pressure, pressure from the media, um, would compel the board to do something, but um, ultimately it didn't. Um, and so just making sure that you have your, 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 your bases covered that, um, you know, talking to the people that draft up the school's budget every year, right? Um, talking to even, even um, people uh, outside of the school um, that have, money that they want to devote to these kinds of projects. You can just set up your own 
Um, but if your own mechanisms for fun, uh, we need to be actively lobbying and, and, and must be a, a, you know, a constant voice in the, the ears of those who hold power at our universities and those that make up our institutions. Um, and uh, so, you know, when it comes to, yeah, Georgetown specifically, the onus is on the students, right, um, to make this change. So, you know, it, it, it's um, making sure that you know um, kind of who, who's spearheading it, right, and, and making sure that it's balanced, right, because, you know, unfortunately at Georgetown, it's just students and faculty. Without students, without passionate students, without passionate faculty, you have no reparations with it, Georgetown. Um, and so, you know, doing, doing the most that you can while trying to recruit people from other, other sectors of the institution um, or just increasing your numbers within the faculty and the students, you know, things like that. Um, and so, you know, just having, having a mechanism for, um, you know, I, I think about this a lot as a student, you know, once I'm gone in May, um, thinking about who's coming, who's coming after me um, and, and um, bringing them into what I'm doing. Um, teaching them about the history, teaching them about why it's important to respond to the history, teaching them about different ways to respond to the history, inspiring them like I was inspired, right? Um, so that I can um, sort of uh, leave, a, um, leave, a, leave a lasting mark. I, I think this work is, it, it, it is so massive. Movements like this can't be completed during a single student's tenure at college. Um, all that any of us can ever do is tend to the sapling that our forefathers planted and make sure that others tend to it long after we're gone. Thank you. Uh, Ebony. Yeah, I mean, you know, the seminary is in an interesting position because as an institution, the, the administration and the leadership just made the decision to do it. And so I, I, I come from that context and my my advice to another institution would be to just dive in. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you're if you're trying to research and you you could research forever and then have the discussion forever and ever, but until you dive in, <laughs> the work will always just be you know in theory. And um and I know that's easier said than done. And as someone who has dived in and is currently building a plane while flying it, I can tell you that it's a lot <laughs> complex than, you know, just dive in. So I don't, I, I understand what I'm saying is not an easy thing. Um, but, you know, it's going to be messy either way. People are going to be uncomfortable either way. No one is going to like everything and we're going to mess up. You're going to, no, no one has ever done this. No one has ever done this. And so we are not going to get it right on the first or a hundredth try. Um, but the idea is that if you try enough, we could get to somewhere that looks kind of right. And so, um, again, I'm coming from a, a place of a lot of privilege here because I, you know, the leadership just said we're going to do this. And so, uh, but I, I do find that even with the complexities of, of, of again, flying while building, um, it's coming together quite nicely, and it, it creates a, a greater opportunity for collaboration, specifically with the descendant community, which is, you know, how we are able to build that relationship that we want. Sure. Um, and in that, um, one of the ways that we're doing that is through how we are going to memorialize the ancestors of these descendants. Um, 
instead of just renaming a building or putting up a plaque, we are having conversations with them. We are creating a working group. How would you like to see your great-grandmother ancestor um, remembered, remembered here? It might, you know, if she didn't have the best experience here, she might not want her name plastered on the building. That, like, that might not work for that family. And so before doing those types of things, we are talking with the families. And because we are approaching this work humbly, knowing that, number one, the seminary is guilty. So, you know, we don't need to do a whole lot of research to know that. And so then mm-hmm. we, because we know that, we've decided to take some kind of action and hopefully build upon that action as time goes. But then we're inviting the community in to be a part of that in whatever way they feel comfortable. Um, because as I mentioned before, some people are saying this is too little and too late. And they have that right too. And we we extend our hand with no expectation that someone will grab it and walk alongside us in this. But when they do, we we invite them in wholeheartedly. And so as an institution, um, we kind of have to check our pride and approach this, you know, with a whole lot of humility. Um, but again, for bringing it back, um, my my recommendation would be just to dive on it. <laughs> it's going to be messy yeah, to yeah. get into it. Yeah, Miles has something to add too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I absolutely agree. It's it's really tough because you have so many people at uh, at Georgetown and just so many people just generally who approach the work of reparations and, and approach the work of, of cleaning up a mess. I'm taking a class right now called Genocide, Justice, and Reconciliation. Where we're talking about, you know, what, what, what do you do after a genocide occurs? Uh, what do you do in, in, um, in the Central African Republic? What do you do in the Congo? Um, what do you do um, in, um, in, in Rwanda? You know, uh, how, how in the world do you go about cleaning up that mess, right? It's just such a big, daunting um, prospect to uh, millions of victims, uh, millions more uh, who, are, who are related to those victims, um, millions who are displaced, uh, you know, and so, you know, how, how in the world do you go about cleaning something like that up? And so there are so many people who want to, um, who um, just are in the theory so much, right? And they're just, you know, they're so worried about uh, getting it right that they never begin, right? And so, um, Diving right in, absolutely, and I really like what um, what um, what, uh, what what Professor what Professor Davis said uh, that we that it needs to be informed by descendants. It absolutely needs to be informed by representatives of those who've been affected. Right? Um, we need to avoid at all costs paternalism um, in these sort of processes. Um, this is not charity. This is not um, something that should feel like it's being imposed um, upon people. Um, they should have um, a really big say, a really big voice um, in the work that your university does to respond to this history. Um, and, and they should, um, yeah, they should, they should be in the room. Um, they, they should, um, their, their concerns should be listened to. There should be a mechanism for receiving their concerns and talking through those concerns with them. Um, there should be, um, you know, yeah, ways that their feedback is incorporated into what's going on. Um, because, you know, it's, it's so, so easy in the work of cleaning up the mess to create another mess. Um, it's so tragic. So, um, yeah, absolutely agree with everything that Professor Davis said, yeah. Well, if, if I can share with you both, I am still haunted by a conversation that we all had uh, at the Robeson Project with descendants of the GU-272 
and one of the descendants saying to us, you cannot begin something that you're not prepared to follow through on. And this is going to take time. This is going to take commitment. This is going to take you all showing up. And so diving in, I'm thinking of one of Jesus's lines about you need to count the cost first, right? I mean, are we prepared as an institution actually to pay the, pay the cost that, that this will entail? Because it is, as you say, about building relationships with people who this university has harmed. And if we turn around and harm them again by not following through on our commitments, then that's going to be horrible. So, um, I, I, so, um, yeah, Evan. I know I just, in a, I, I definitely hear that. Um, but I think there's a difference in, if you make the commitment, then you, like as an institution, you do what you, you can to keep that commitment. That's one thing. And then doing all the research and making sure everything is pretty and nice and evenly, uh, easily packaged so that this mm. can be as smooth a process as possible, I think is where a lot of places are right now. And they want to make mm. sure mm. they can yeah. approach reparations in a very comfortable and mapped out way. And there's just, that is, is not going to happen. That's the part yeah, that's right. messy. Making the commitment is something that institutions know how to do. They make a commitment to their athletic programs. They make a commitment to, you know, the rebuilding the this or that on campus. Like that part is something that speaks to the character of the institution. And if they can't just decide to commit to this type of work, then there's a whole different conversation. Um, because you can commit to, like the seminary has, you know, when our dean came on about 10, 20 years ago, now I can't remember, he made a commitment to uncovering the seminary's history so that when we celebrate our bicentennial in 2023, we can tell a holistic, um, give a holistic right. picture of what this place looked like. And so the reparations program is in line with that commitment already right. um, and other right. things that have been happening. So that was the easier part so to speak, um, right, if the seminary right. says they are who they say they are, then they're going to keep that commitment. The money, the everything else, that's the messy part. Right, 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 right. No, that's, that's really valuable. Good advice. Okay, my final question is um, about individuals, right? Uh, we are going to have two brilliant speakers coming along in November, uh, Sandy Darity and Kristen Mullen, who are wanting the reparations conversation to take place at the national level, right? They want the federal government to make amends for the centuries of mistreatment of African-Americans and the wage, uh, I mean, the, the inequality uh, needs to be remunerated in terms of money. And they think that the federal government should be giving that money. Uh, that is obviously a very big conversation that it's very difficult for individuals to to say well what can we do how can we help so i wondered if you all could give us any concrete examples of of how individuals have made a difference are making a difference and of course i've got two individuals to ask this question too so miles uh take it away absolutely absolutely and that's a question on everyone's mind you know um what what can i do um, and I 
I want you to know that it's not as hard as you think. It's, it's, you know, you don't have to step up on the scene and make a huge impact and, you know, secure a hundred thousand dollar donation to be, you know, to buy your way into the conversation of reparations, right? Something that I always recommend that people do to get, like, just getting started on this work is to have conversations with those around you. Um, ask your friends what comes to mind when they think of the word reparations, um, when they think of uh, reconciliation, apology, remembrance, restitution. Um, ask them what makes a good apology. Um, ask them how we can find the sweet spot between remembering too much and remembering too little. Um, they, they, don't, they don't even have to be in a, in a slavery context. Um, these terms apply to all of us. Uh,